0: Good evening, and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM, listener-supported community radio in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Katherine Garvins. On tonight's show, we'll hear my interview with environmental engineer and author David Sedlak. David Sedlak is the Plato Malazimov Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and Director of the Berkeley Water Center, He earned his Ph.D. in water chemistry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1992 and a B.S. in environmental science from Cornell University in 1986. He is the author of the award-winning book Water 4.0, The Past, Present, and Future of the World's Most Vital Resource. I will be speaking with him tonight about his most recent book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate, published in 2023 by Yale University Press. David Sedlick, welcome to the WORT Airwaves.
1: Thanks for having me, Catherine.
0: You bet. So I want to start by touching a little bit on your first book, Water 4.0. In it, you looked at the history of Global water systems. Can you speak briefly about this? And you also had commented that the research you did helped inform and define the six water crises that you identify in Water for All. Can you speak to that a bit?
1: Sure. So, some of the motivation for writing Water 4.0 was the experiences that I was having here in California, talking to members of the public about the way that water systems were changing. But for me, the real moment that allowed the ideas to crystallize that the best way to tell this story was by way of history was when I got invited to the Nobel conference at Gustavus Adolphus College. Um, and in, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a small college in Minnesota. And every year they have a conference where they shut down the whole university and they invite everyone to come and hear lectures on one topic. And I was afraid that the technical nature of the research that I was involved in would be off-putting to the audience, and so I decided to tell the story of how we were struggling to provide people with safe and affordable water in water-stressed parts of the country by going all the way back to the time of the Romans and telling the story of how the first cities developed water distribution systems and explaining these four different phases where First, we ended up with a water supply for cities. That was what the Romans gave us. Then we ended up with the ability to treat water and make it safe to drink. That was something that happened at the start of the 20th century. Then after we got tired of all the pollution coming out of our cities, especially our sewage treatment plants and our industries, we installed different kinds of treatment systems. That was water 3.0. And what's happening now with things like Uh, Water recycling and seawater desalination and stormwater capture is a fourth revolution in water. And so that's where the name Water 4.0 came from.
0: Sure. And and how did that feed into the determination of these six water crises that you define in Water for All? And if you can speak to those um, broadly to begin with, what those six water crises are that you defined and you know maybe some examples of how those are manifest.
1: Well, as someone who's trained as a, a water chemist and, and maybe a little bit of an engineer, I felt like I was really pushing myself to my limits to tell the story of the history of water. And that's when I wrote Water 4.0, I thought, well, wow, this is as far as I could possibly stretch myself. But after writing that book and talking to people around the world who were experiencing water crises, I realized that the book I'd written was actually kind of narrow. It was only one piece of a much larger problem. And so I realized that I had written a book about water scarcity for people living in the wealthiest cities in the world. And there were many more crises in that. So the first crisis that I talk about in Water for All is water for the wealthy. Maybe the the 1 billion or so people who live in places like North America and Western Europe and Japan and Australia, and their challenges of providing a water supply. Um, They're pretty fortunate because they have a lot of money. And when there's a crisis, they can use their, their wealth to build all kinds of interesting technologies like desalination plants and advanced water recycling plants. But that isn't true for everyone on Earth. And so the second water crisis I called Water for the Many, These are the, I don't know, four to six billion people on earth who live in cities and are supplied with piped water. But that piped water may not reach their home 24 hours a day. It may not be safe to drink. And the utility that provides that water doesn't have anywhere near the wealth that the utilities in wealthy parts of the world have when it comes time to address a water crisis. But those... Countries, uh, those middle income countries, those cities in lower income countries, are are at least a little better off than the unconnected. So the third water crisis is water for the unconnected. That's the approximately one billion people around the world who lack an improved water supply. These are the people who might have to walk for uh, great distances to uh, fetch water and bring it home, or that might get their water from uh, an open well that's uh, susceptible to all kinds of contamination. The fourth, fifth, and sixth water crises are not necessarily about having enough water for your household use. It's having water that's safe to drink, water that you might need to grow food, and water to protect the environment. So the fourth water crisis is water that's safe to drink. That is uh, the problem of having water that's free of toxic chemicals is, is something that transcends your wealth. Some of the wealthiest people on earth, uh, for example, many people in North America are struggling with this problem of PFAS in their water supply. Um, I think you're well aware of that in the upper Midwest. But there are people in low-income countries who are struggling with problems like arsenic or fluoride in their water supply. There are people in wealthy countries who do too. And many of the solutions to these problems look surprisingly similar among wealthy and poor countries, because quite often it's the, the challenge of treating the water when it reaches someone's household. The fifth water crisis is water for growing food. And so something like 90% of the water that humans take out of the environment ends up going to growing food, and uh, and growing food is a real challenge as the climate changes because we have a lot more water scarcity and that could lead to both the failures of our farms and and, and impacts on our rural communities as well as threats to the, the, the food supply and uh, and the cost of, of food. And finally, the last crisis, and, and I guess we could almost think about it this way because it's, it's typical of what we see around the world, is the crisis that affects ecosystems. So nature usually bats last, and in my uh, topology of water crises, I, I call it the last crisis, and that's water for ecosystems. So when we take water out of the environment to grow food, when we take water out of the environment for our water supply and for our cities, we deprive the environment of water, and that often has detrimental effects on ecosystems. And when we use water, either uh, within our cities or uh, for agriculture, some of the used water ends up going into the environment and it can cause ecological problems through things like nutrients and chemicals that might remain in the water after we're done with it. So those are six different crises that at least help us understand that it's not just one global water crisis that we're facing, it's separate ones that affect different parts of the world in uh, characteristically different ways.
0: One of my takeaways from from this was, even though you know in their own context, they're very distinct, they're so interrelated, and the challenges of each are rather similar in terms of the magnitude or the challenges that need to be overcome
1: and, and I think another part of that also is that places will face multiple water crises simultaneously. So mm-hmm. if you have an extreme drought in a country, it's likely that the farmers are suffering at the same time that people living in the cities are running out of water. But the reason that I think it works to break up the crises in this way is that the institutions that are often responsible for managing water are aligned in a, a certain way that fit within the, uh, the, the way we look at the different crises.
0: That makes sense. So you put all of these issues in the context of Two global, major global forces, economic growth and development, and climate change. And they both have impacted access to clean, healthy water historically and will continue to do so. So I'm wondering if we can talk a bit first about this issue of economic growth and development and how it has impacted and is impacting availability of clean and healthy water. I understand that growth is leveling off in some, tr- some countries and communities, mostly I think wealthy countries and communities, and poised to accelerate in other communities and countries like sub-Saharan Africa. What have these areas of growth or how have these areas of growth impacted access to water historically, and what does that look like for the future?
1: So in the book, I refer to this period of exceptional growth as the Great Acceleration. It's something that, that people who study this topic often use to, to frame it. Sometimes we talk about this as the Anthropocene, the era in which humans have taken control of many of the geochemical cycles on Earth. And so if we look at the period starting at the second half of the 20th century, right, after World War II, we see a period of great population growth we see a migration of people to cities, and we see a lot of economic growth. And that growth first happened in the so-called OECD countries, or, or the countries that we think of as part of the Western world. And so if you think about the period from the 1950s to like the late 1970s, 1980s, in the United States and Western Europe, you saw populations grow and a lot of development. And with that development came the clearing of land to to make farmland, uh, came things like industrialization, and in some cases, water scarcity. But that water scarcity was balanced by large investments in water infrastructure. So that period from the 50s to the early 80s in in North America, we put in all kinds of dams and reservoirs and water projects and and water treatment plants and wastewater treatment plants. The growth of the Great Acceleration happened a little bit later. It started a little later in the so-called BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, South Africa, and China. Uh, And and those countries grew very quickly and, and are just now, starting to slow down, we saw that the population of China, the growth rate slowing, and it may have peaked just this year. And so, they also underwent a period of great population growth, great increases of wealth, and and scarcity of resources, and then the construction of water infrastructure, among other things. And now we're seeing that growth happening in places like sub-Saharan Africa, South America, and uh, and parts of of Asia, and. And that will happen for the next 20 or 30 years as cities in sub-Saharan Africa have populations that, that dwarf some of the biggest cities on earth. Probably most of the mega cities in the world will be in sub-Saharan Africa in the 21st century. So they're going through a period of great growth. And with each of those uh, periods of growth come challenges of uh, providing safe and affordable water for people and having enough water to grow food. And so um, that is one way to think about it, that this driving force behind water crises has been not only the increase in the number of people, but the increase in wealth. Because as people get wealthier, their lifestyle, whether it's the food they eat or the way that they live, demands more water.
0: The second global force that you talk about is climate change. And it may be counterintuitive that more rain generated through climate change does not necessarily translate into more clean and safe water for everyone. It's a lot more complicated than that. Can you speak to that a bit?
1: Sure. So the the real impacts of climate change are just now starting to be felt in the in the past decade or so. I think we're all acutely aware of that, whether it's the The forest fires or the heat waves or the extreme uh, rainfall patterns, but uh, one of the things that has been predicted all along about climate change is that the wetter places would get wetter and the drier places would get drier, and that indeed seems to be what we're seeing. So one of the characteristics of a change in climate is an expansion of the width of the Hadley Circulation Cells. So these are air circulation cells that originate around the equator, and they take moist air from the warm ocean. There's a lot of ocean around the equator. They pull it up and and lead to that uh, tropical zone that's uh, around the Earth's middle. But when that air, now deprived of the water that it had, comes back down to Earth, it helps create some of the world's great deserts. So when we think about the Sahara Desert or the Kalahari Desert, those are at about 30 degrees latitude, and that's because of the the Hadley cells. And with increasing temperatures and increasing climate, the width of those Hadley cells are expanding. And so, say, like the Mediterranean region of Europe was going to have the climate of North Africa, and uh, the southwest United States is going to have the climate of the Sonoran Desert and in south america we're seeing the expansion of those hadley cells have impacts for example in australia so when you look at perth in australia uh, a place where not only the hadley cells are expanding but we're also seeing changes in global ocean circulation patterns Uh, they've already had a 15 percent decrease in the amount of precipitation that they get and they're experiencing uh, a lot more water scarcity the second factor of a warming planet is that air holds more moisture at warmer temperatures. And so uh, evaporation is faster, and also because it's warmer and the growing season's longer, evapotranspiration increases. So trees also release more water into the air. And so the water that falls may, may end up on the ground, but it's gonna end up back in the atmosphere a lot faster, and the atmosphere is gonna hold on to that water to a greater extent as it gets warmer. So coming back to Perth, they had a 15% decrease in the amount of precipitation, but they had a 50% decrease in the last few decades in the amount of water reaching their reservoir because the rainfall that fell uh, evaporated before it made it to the reservoir. And they're predicting another 50% decrease in the water flowing into the reservoirs uh, between now and 2050. And that's what we're seeing in the American Southwest, a phenomenon that people refer to as aridification. So it's not just a decrease in the amount of rainfall, it's also an increase in the rate at which that water makes its way back into the atmosphere.
0: That's a lot of challenges. <laughs> I have to tell you, I was listening to the radio as I was driving into town today, and uh, Magna Chaktavarti was speaking with the team of people who put the Mars helicopter on Mars, which was this amazing achievement. It was only supposed to fly three flights, for example, and it ended up flying 72 flights, and it just recently is out of recently is out of commission. But one thing she said that I was like, I want to remember this, for my talk with David, is that humankind is still capable of doing hard things. And I just thought that was just such an appropriate statement for the challenge that we're facing with all of these things, the the economic growth, the climate change having happening all at once. What are those hard things? You, at one point, you referenced like all of the above solution for communities which were, you know, water efficiency and new technology and repurposing of existing infrastructure, development of unconventional water sources. So it, it seems like there's a, like a three-pronged approach to address all of the six water crises, really. So what about water efficiency and new technology? And I think a lot of us think like the most basic thing that we can do is conserve water in our homes or in our daily life. So how does water conservation fit in at the basic level to that water efficiency and new technologies, and what about those other things?
1: Well, much like the idea that the cheapest electricity you can buy is the electricity you don't use, the cheapest water, that, the water supply you can ever have is the, the water that you don't need. So any way that we can reduce the waste of water is a win for us. And we as a society have been making a lot of progress in water efficiency over the past 30 years or so. Um, If you're old enough, you might remember back in the day when we had those old-fashioned top-loading washing machines where the the tank filled up almost to the top and emptied two or three Mm -hmm. times during the cycle. And most people have Uh, front-loading washing machines or top-loaders that that don't use nearly as much water today. So there was a savings of upwards of 40% on water, and most people didn't even notice the change. Um, And and we've had similar kinds of changes in plumbing throughout our homes that has resulted in things like per capita indoor water use dropping by uh, 20 or 30% over the last three decades. So those are the things that are like most obvious to us, but the real savings in water and the real opportunities for water conservation take place outdoors in places where people rely upon irrigation to have outdoor gardens. For example, in the the South and the Southwest, uh, over half the water use takes place outdoors in growing grass and, and keeping the yard green. And What we see is that we don't have this binary choice between uh, having a yard with plants in it and having rocks and cactuses and and cattle skulls in the backyard. There's something in between and that's uh, appropriate landscaping. So people moving from that old fashioned, Midwestern or Northeastern lawn to something that fits in their climate. So when you look at places like uh, Phoenix, Arizona or Albuquerque or San Diego, You don't see green lawns as much anymore. You see people with trees which provide shade that keep the yard cool and people with uh, vegetation that's more uh, conducive to the native environment. And that's better for uh, attracting birds and taking care of insects in those climates anyway. And then the other place where conservation can really get us uh, a long way is conservation in the way we apply water to crops. And so I said before that the main way that people take water out of the environment and use it is to grow food. Uh, Much of the world still relies upon the ancient practice of surface irrigation or flood irrigation. They're still uh, filling canals and flooding fields to water crops. And we've seen a transition in much of the United States, at least in the Western part of the United States, away from that over the last three decades to things like uh, center pivot irrigation and sprinklers and in some places even micro drip irrigation and that's saved tremendous quantities of water
0: that's interesting because i confess i look at those center pivoting irrigation systems i mean it seems wasteful to me but what i'm hearing from you is that that's actually a a huge improvement over kind of the old-fashioned methods of irrigation
1: there are still ways to improve it. Like there, there have been improvements in center pivot irrigation where people uh, use so called drop nozzles where they, they apply the water closer to the ground so there's less evaporation happening. There are things we can do with moisture sensors to make sure we don't overwater when we irrigate. And all of those things come together and give us the ability to grow more crop on the same amount of water, or as some people in this field say, more crop per drop.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Are there things in addition to the uh, changes in irrigation practice that can help further reduce the ag demand?
1: There, there are a number of things that. So, so one way to frame this is to recognize that uh, between now and twenty fifty, the world's going to have to grow about fifty uh, percent more food because mm-hmm. to to keep up with the population growth and the increased hunger that people have for meat as they get wealthier. And that's going to require a second green revolution. So the first green revolution were the innovations in plant breeding that led to higher crop yields and fertilizers and pesticides and and irrigation. And that allowed us to keep up with the population growth in the first part of the Great Acceleration. Uh, It's time to do that again and we'll see great innovations in uh, plant breeding and and agronomy in the coming years, but we'll also have a need to uh, do a better job with the water that we have, especially in light of a changing climate. So some of these technologies like uh, like irrigation technologies will be paired with things like plant breeding, uh, growing plants that can get by with less water or that can grow with saltier water, as well as things like uh, soil moisture sensors and, and better forecasting that allow us to apply water precisely. And what we're really going to be have have to be careful about during this period is we don't fall into what some resource economists of as the Javon's paradox and that's this idea that as something becomes cheaper or as it becomes more plentiful a resource um, we might end up consuming more of it. So what we've seen thus far in the United States is many of these investments that we've made in more efficient irrigation have really just resulted in farmers growing more thirsty crops. So farmers are economically rational actors When they invest in a water-saving technology and it makes more water available to them, they choose to grow crops that can get them a higher profit. And so we're going to have to think about how to take the water savings that are sometimes created because of uh, public investments and subsidies that allow the farmers to buy these efficient irrigation devices and use that water either to grow food in other places or to return some of this water to the environment.
0: I didn't catch that you touched on this in, in your book, but is there is the movement to hydroponics and, and growing plants only in water, is that helping or, or hurting? Or does it have no impact on the amount of water being consumed?
1: There's a lot of interest these days in hydroponics. There's a lot of interest in things like vertical farming, where you grow food uh, in warehouses within cities. Um, I think those are going to be very impactful for specialty crops. For example, if you wanted to grow uh, cilantro or parsley for a local market, it makes a lot more sense to grow it in a warehouse close to the city so it can be delivered fresh. But most of the food that we grow in the world is gonna continue to be grown on fields. In fact, many times it's gonna be grown in rain-fed agriculture, not even irrigated agriculture. So when we talk about where the calories come from, that make up our cereals and grains or our dairy products, that's not going to be grown hydroponically. It's going to be specialty products that are uh, grown hydroponically, and there it can have a big impact in terms of creating markets closer to where the, the foodstuffs are consumed.
0: Very good. So let's talk a bit about repurposing infrastructure that currently exists.
1: So... As I mentioned, this period from like the 1950s through the 1980s was a a time of great growth and great investment in infrastructure. It was also the heyday of building dams and reservoirs. Um, And so in that period from the 1950s through the early 1980s, the world built a lot of dams and reservoirs in a lot of places, and somewhere in that time period, we recognized that it often caused more problems than the good that it delivered. So we were flooding uh, out uh, rural communities and indigenous communities of their land. We were building dams that ultimately suffered from siltation. They filled in with uh, silt or they deprived the downstream river of, of silt. They often blocked fish migrations and caused all other kinds of havoc. And so somewhere in the 1980s and early 1990s, the global development banks uh, rethought some of their enthusiasm for big dam projects. And so now we're in a place around the world where we're asking questions, not only about whether or not we should be building more dams and reservoirs, mostly we're not, but whether the existing dams and reservoirs should be coming down. So here in Northern California on the Klamath River, one of the largest dam removal projects ever attempted is happening and before that up in the Olympic National Park there was a a large dam, a a couple large dams that came down to as part of a restoration of a a salmon fishery in tribal lands. And so the, the tide on dams has turned and people are wondering whether we need them or how to get rid of them. And I think that's a little bit of a problem because we need the water that's stored behind these dams and reservoirs just to keep us at the status quo. And so it's time to rethink some of these dams and reservoirs, how they operate, uh, how we uh, prioritize the generation of hydroelectric power versus the uh, delivery of water, how we let water out of dams, whether we're doing it just to provide downstream users with water or whether we're doing that in a way that's beneficial to uh, aquatic habitat. So we're in a period of rethinking dams and reservoirs. and as we do that there are a lot of opportunities to pair the way that we operate our dams and reservoirs with the potential for storing water underground. So today many cities and many agricultural areas rely upon groundwater as a source of water but they don't fully take advantage of the ability of the underground to store water. So we generally just dig a well and we put a pump in there and we pump it and if we pump too much and the well starts going dry we slow down the amount that we pump. But we have the ability to operate our dams which feed our rivers and take those rivers and divert them onto the land and use that to percolate water into the ground and replenish our our aquifers. And this practice, which is sometimes referred to as managed aquifer recharge, has a great potential to create a a whole new series of water storage structures that don't have some of the problems that reservoirs have had historically. So uh, by banking water underground, we can have vast stores of water to get us through dry years and we can take advantage of those wet years when we have more water coming down than what we could trap in our existing reservoirs.
0: You say rivers diverted to replenish underground water. Is that, is there literally a storage facility down there? Or are we just storing water in the existing natural?
1: It's referred to as an aquifer.
0: Aquifer, thank and, you.
1: And, and, <laughs> and those aquifers are just the pores in the in the, the or the okay. pores in the in the subsurface soil if you want to think about it sure. these layers of sand and gravel underground. Yeah.
0: Their
1: their natural state may be to be full, but once we start pumping them to use them, they tend to empty out. So for example, uh in uh the middle of the country we have the Ogallala aquifer which has been depleted over many generations. Uh, in the western United States, in California, we have the, uh, the Central Valley aquifer, which has dropped um, you know, on the order of uh, many meters, tens of meters over, during the 20th century due to overuse. And so what we're really doing is we're taking these aquifers that have been depleted by, by pumping and filling them back up. And so oftentimes we're, we're taking this these natural structures, which are now sitting partially empty because we've overused them, and we're topping them off with water from other sources.
0: That is a, a great lead-in to the next or third solution of the development of unconventional water sources. Um, can you speak to that? And then I'd like to touch on the, the Klamath River a little bit.
1: Sure. So... Unconventional, by unconventional water sources, I mean water that otherwise wouldn't be safe to drink or suitable for drinking without some sort of technological intervention. And so the most obvious one to most of us is seawater desalination. So we have the ability to take water from the ocean, which is obviously too salty to drink, and put it through a seawater desalination plant, and out of the other side of that plant comes drinkable tap water. And close to a billion people on earth uh, have at least some portion of their water supply coming from uh, desalination or desalinated seawater. That's one unconventional water source. There's also salty water uh, that's not just in the ocean, but many times if we dig a groundwater well, if we dig deep enough, we'll find underneath the freshwater a lens of saltier water, sometimes called brackish groundwater. And that's a huge resource that exists in many different places that we don't fully exploit. And so that's another unconventional water source. The other main unconventional water source that you don't hear a lot about is treated wastewater. That is the water that flows out of our sewage treatment plants. Mm -hmm. If we can treat seawater and make it drinkable, we can use some of the same technologies to make the Treated wastewater safe to drink and that's happening uh, throughout the Western United States and in places like Singapore and Australia these days. Um, And then the last one of the unconventional water sources which I, I guess it's already safe to drink but it's certainly something we don't exploit well enough and that's the rainwater that falls within our cities. So normally when rainwater falls in the countryside, we think, well, that's something we can collect in a reservoir and use for our drinking water supply. But when it falls in our cities, we usually think, well, that's something that's dirty that we have to get out of the city and put down a storm sewer. But increasingly cities in water stressed parts of the world are seeing that water that flows in the gutter during a rainstorm as a potential water resource.
0: And how, I mean, they still have to treat that in some way, right, to make it safe to drink?
1: Yeah, the, the, the rainwater that might maybe falls on the roof of your house or the roof of an apartment building is something that's almost safe enough to drink on its own. Uh, you know, you might have birds flying up on your roof and getting contaminants into it or something like that. It needs some treatment. But once that rainwater hits the city streets, it's got, it needs to be treated before it can become part of the drinking water supply.
0: And is there a separate process for that type of thing? Or is it similar to the, like the desalina- not de- desalination or is there a reverse osmosis process that I read about that comes into play here? Is that something else?
1: Yeah, so there are two ways that people generally uh, attempt to convert this stormwater runoff, the runoff that's in our city streets into drinking water. One approach is a technological approach. So you could put the water through Uh, something that looks like a drinking water treatment plan, and if it's still not clean enough, you can also use technologies like reverse osmosis or activated carbon to further purify it. But the other one is to allow it to percolate into the ground. And as that water percolates into the ground, you have a natural filtration process from uh, the microbes that live in the soil, that help uh, remove particles and remove uh, dissolved chemicals and uh, and things like viruses that might, uh, might compromise the quality of the water. And then it becomes part of the groundwater.
0: Yeah. And that's already pretty much widely in use, right? This percolating through the natural systems.
1: It is, but most cities don't uh, avail themselves of that for water that's flowed through city streets. They, they view that water as, as not safe to percolate and to use. But there are cities like, for example, in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I know it doesn't rain a lot there, but when it does rain, most of the rainwater gets captured on people's properties and gets percolated into the ground and becomes part of the drinking water supply.
0: So I wanted to go back to your, your comment about the Klamath River and this was a concept that was that was completely new to me um in your book the Klamath River was actually granted universal rights or almost like the same same rights as people have to have ample quantities of clean water extending that to ecosystems and the ecosystems part of this is something that i think is overlooked, but it is vitally important. And that whole idea of granting personhood to an ecosystem or a river was was a brand new concept for me.
1: And I think a lot of this grows out of a, a movement that traces its origins to New Zealand, where uh, the, the Maori people have a big say in government and, and the way uh, in which regulations are created for land and water. And so you know, one of the first places where uh, someone took this concept that uh, nature can have its own rights was a river in New Zealand where it was granted personhood. And, and that personhood granted to the river uh, meant that the courts would appoint a steward who would look after uh, the, the rights of the river and make sure that it wasn't being impacted. And that may sound to you like some of the things we do commonly for environmental protection in in most of uh, the United States, but it is quite different because sometimes uh, the interests of people can diverge from the interests of a natural system. So in the long term, maybe we all have the same interests of having a healthy, safe planet. But uh, when someone is assigned the job of looking after the rights of a river, that's the only thing that they defend, the the river's right to exist and the river's right to be uh, healthy and, and safe. And they won't make compromises because uh, they need to share the water with with someone who might use it for industry or as a drinking water supply. And so it, it's had a powerful impact uh, in places where it's been used, it's extended from New Zealand to some uh, South American countries, and more recently it's been adopted, like you said, uh, by, uh, with, with a lot of help from uh, tribal communities in, in North America, both in the Klamath region, but also First Peoples in Canada have been uh, pushing this idea that, that nature could have its own rights, and that right extends to water.
0: I think that's brilliant. I'm all for that. <laughs> um, so I know I want to be respectful of your time. We've got, we've got about five minutes, I think, that I had you scheduled for. And we talked earlier about a little about what's going on in the upper Midwest. So if we could touch on that briefly and then close out by just talking about you know what the future holds for um, safe and clean water.
1: Okay, where in the Midwest? Did you want to start?
0: Well, you know, Flint, Michigan, I guess, is one of the obvious examples. Um, PFAS is is something that WRT has covered quite a bit.
1: Well, P- PFAS is a great example of, uh, of this idea of uh, water that's safe to drink, uh, because as, as many of your listeners may know, these are the so-called forever chemicals, these uh, fluorinated organic chemicals that have proven to have human health effects at relatively low concentrations that... Um, turn out to be in a lot more places than anyone thought they would be. So initially they were detected mainly uh, at places where uh, firefighting foams were being used at airports, but it turns out that they're also in our clothing and many of our consumer products and they're used to to coat uh, uh, plastics and to coat paper boxes and things like that. And so when we use these sensitive uh, measurement techniques t- on on water, we find that uh, PFAS is present at unsafe levels in many of our water supplies and many of our ecosystems. And it gets back to this challenge of water that's safe to drink that, um, first of all, um, it's very difficult to remove PFAS and chemicals like it in conventional water treatment plants, but there are ways to do it. It's even harder to do it if you rely upon a a well, if you're an individual homeowner who has a well that has PFAS contamination, or if you're a small community that can't afford to build an advanced treatment plant. And so in the future, we're going to have to come up with ways that we can uh, purify water at the tap. Because as as you know, of the water that we use in our homes, only a a very small percentage of it actually uh, gets consumed in, in drinking water and in cooking. And so we lack some of the technologies to take PFAS and chemicals like it out of the water at the tap, but there are tremendous developments in uh, in technologies that allow us to do that and may make it possible. The other piece of PFAS that I think is worth thinking about is this question of stewardship of chemicals. And it's not just PFAS, it's everything that we use. We have to realize that increasingly we're living with a... a closed water loop. So when we think about the water that we uh, flush down the drain, that water becomes someone else's drinking water supply, or it becomes our own drinking water supply if we're recycling it, or it becomes a water that supports an ecosystem downstream. So I think it's a call for us to pay a little bit more attention to the, the products that we use. Almost like if you live in a home and you know you have a septic tank, there are certain chemicals you don't bring into your house, I think when we think about our cities in that same mindset, we'll rethink the chemicals that we routinely use and dispose of.
0: Um, and And it sounds I mean, you're very optimistic, I think about the ability of, of communities and countries to apply principles at the local level, as you say, you know, things being treated at the tap. Um, do you want to speak to that? And is there anything that we didn't speak about in our conversation that you think is important for folks to know?
1: Well, I, I think that I am reasonably hopeful that of these many crises that I describe in the book, we will find a way out of them. If I look back in history and look at the, the process that we normally run across in water systems, we reach a point of crisis people get fed up with it, and then they realize that the status quo isn't working. So it's not just a question of, uh, of making improvements along the edges, it's adopting new ways of providing and treating water. And I think we're at one of those moments now where as the effects of climate change and global development start to impact us, we're going to have to rethink many of our assumptions about where our water comes from, how we use our water, and what we do with it when we're, when, when we're through. And that mentality of thinking about water as a limited resource, uh, a resource that's shared not only with other communities but shared with nature should inform our decisions and allow us to go forward. And uh, when you look around the world at all the great creative things that people are doing in, in pockets in small communities to, to do this, I have a lot of confidence that if we set our mind to it, there's no water challenge that's insurmountable.
0: Very good. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time today. I really appreciate uh, the work that you do, um, the books that you've written, and really appreciate your joining me. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You have been listening to The Perpetual Notion Machine. I'm your host, Katherine Garvins. Tonight we heard my interview with David Sedlak about his latest book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. Sedlak is professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and director of the Berkeley Water Center. David's TED Talk, Four Ways We Can Avoid Catastrophic Drought, has received over 1.2 million views. You will find a link to that talk and to our entire conversation on the WORT website. Up next is Radio Literature with Melvin Hinton. Thanks for listening and have a great evening.